There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Paradise is not always safe. On February 1st, 2006, after years of investigation, a man was arrested in connection to a murder that took place on an idyllic island. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. When 27-year-old Janelle Patton was looking for a place to land after a particularly bad breakup, she decided to head to the place where, 30 years earlier, her own parents had their honeymoon, Norfolk Island. Situated in the South Pacific, this tiny stretch of land is known for its gorgeous scenery and quiet way of living. Janelle, once described as vivacious and confident, left her job in Sydney as well as the security of living in her parents' home and settled down in the place where she hoped to regain all of that she lost after being in an abusive relationship. She was on her own for the first time in her young life, and to support herself, she began working at one of the island's resorts where she impressed visitors with her bubbly personality. Things really turned around for Janelle, and as it turned out, Norfolk Island ended up being exactly what she needed during this tough time in her life. By 2002, the now 29-year-old had created a new life for herself, had new friends, and was excited for her parents to come visit her little slice of paradise. When Ron and Carol arrived in March of that year, they found the happiest version of their daughter, and they knew this had been the perfect move for Janelle. That all changed, however, when Carol and Ron hugged their daughter goodbye and she left with the promise of picking them up the following afternoon, Easter Sunday. As the holiday came and started to go on, Carol grew annoyed at her daughter's tardiness. Figuring she was simply running on, quote, island time, the couple taped a note to their door and went for a walk along the beach. That's when more time passed, and coming back to find their note untouched, that anger started to turn into concern. Heading to her place, Janelle's parents noticed that, through the window, they could see shopping bags on the table, and when they drove around the small island looking for her, they came up empty-handed. By that evening, they were back at the cottage, and the landlord, Foxy McCoy, hearing about Janelle's parents' worries, decided to call the police and report the girl missing. The problem was... Norfolk Island was considered an incredibly safe place to live and stay, meaning it only had two police officers who, with the nearly non-existent crime rate, were really out of their element when it came to a missing persons case. Things got even more complicated when, asking everyone to come to the police station to give a description of Janelle, officers asked the family to identify the body that had just been found by two tourists in New Zealand on the opposite side of the island and wrapped up in a black plastic sheet. Realizing that the chances of two women disappearing around the same time were slim to none, Janelle's parents knew the body had to belong to their daughter. And with that, 29-year-old Janelle Patton became the first murder victim on the island in over 100 years. Stabbed a total of 64 times, Janelle, in her final moments, suffered from a fractured skull, a broken pelvis, and a broken ankle. Her official cause of death, though, was from the wound that punctured her lung. 
Realizing they needed help with this case, the officers on Norfolk Island reached out and found two detectives with the Australian Federal Police who were willing to travel a thousand miles to take over the case. Describing their arrival as being dropped onto another planet, Detectives Bob Peters and Tony Edmondson tried their best to navigate these self-governing territory where cows caused traffic jams and that had a dark past where, in the 1700s, it was used as a penal colony known for its cruelty. With writers Tim Lantham and Roger Maynard in tow keeping up with the details of the case, it wasn't long before local rumors started to infiltrate the investigation, and a timeline of Janelle's movements on March 31st was established with the help of security cameras. From what they could determine, on the day of the disappearance, Janelle was working in the dining room of the Castaway Hotel from about 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. that Easter Sunday. She was then captured on camera at the local grocery store, and at around 11.30 a.m., her landlord told the police that she was seen leaving her cottage to go take her daily walk along the scenic outlook. There, she was spotted by a woman named Jody Williams, who was trying to get her child to sleep along the trail. And a short while later, when the mother came back down Rudy Hill Road, there were no signs of the walker she had just passed by, meaning that Janelle Patton disappeared sometime during a five-minute period. Walking the area that she was last seen in, investigators found a broken pair of sunglasses, some that looked just like the pair Janelle was seen wearing in a photo taken the day before her murder, and when speaking to the locals in the area, they found out that, at the golf course below the lookout, two of them reportedly heard a blood-curdling scream that lasted about a minute and was so loud that someone thought it was a plane either taking off or landing at the nearby Norfolk Island Airport. Hours later, those tourists found Janelle's body. One that, according to forensic pathologist Dr. Alan Calla, who performed more than 2,000 autopsies during his career, was covered in horrific wounds unlike anything he had ever seen. Janelle, it seemed, put up one hell of a struggle against her killer, and found on her body were glass fragments, flecks of paint, and strangely, both her underwear and shorts, as well as her shirt, were sliced despite no signs of sexual assault. While all of this was helpful in solving the case, there were concerns that the massive downpour that occurred just before the body was found might have washed away the most valuable pieces of evidence. With the names of all 2,271 people on the island that day, investigators made the drastic decision to get a law changed in order to collect the fingerprints and DNA of every willing islander between the ages of 15 and 70. While this was happening, and everyone was waiting for a potential hit, they turned to Janelle's diary to see if it provided any viable suspects. In what ended up being a treasure trove of clues, Janelle, who came to the island for a fresh start, wrote long passages about a personal life that was in turmoil. Though she seemed happier than ever to her parents, it seemed that Janelle, even in a place where no one knew her or her past, still suffered from her own fair share of heartbreak. From what they could figure, Janelle had entered a number of relationships with local men that, for one reason or another, all seemed to come to a devastating end. It was hard for her to let go of the men she once cared about, so much so that friends found it worrisome, and police started to wonder if their suspect was actually a former or current partner. 
With her own words guiding them, police went to speak to a local widower, Jap Mangetti. 20 years older than Janelle, Jap's four grieving children were not a fan of their father's new relationship, especially after she moved in with him. According to the diary, Janelle hated his 16-year-old daughter, Donna, and allegedly, the feeling was quite mutual. After they broke up, Janelle wrote about how her former lover once spat on her and, quote, told me he's my first enemy in Norfolk. There was also Lori Bucket Quintal, who dated Janelle for several months before things came to an end when they realized that Janelle wanted long-term and Bucket did not. The breakup was contentious, and detectives allegedly found a note written by Janelle that stated, quote, Look, Bucket, I'm sore. I'm bruised big time. I'm devastated by everything you said and did to me last night. Not focusing solely on former flames, Janelle also spoke about a nasty feud between her and a woman named Susan Fields. Friends turned enemies, Janelle accused a married Susan of having an affair, and eventually, the spat escalated into a bar fight that ended with Susan facing assault charges. Unfortunately, while all of these individuals seemed like viable suspects, none panned out in any meaningful way. Rumor persisted, an inquest was held, and during so, 16 people found out that they were under investigation as details of their private life became incredibly public. Detailing her trials and tribulations, breakups, feuds, and private feelings for the public to hear, even Janelle's own parents were named as persons of interest in the inquest, as well as a handful of others who seemed to have motive for wanting Janelle out of their lives. According to what police stated in the courtroom, whoever killed Janelle seemed to have left a palm print on the black plastic tarp used to cover her body. When tested, however, it came back to a local builder named Steve Cochran. The problem was, while it was clear that Steve did have contact with the plastic, they were unable to determine if it happened before the murder and if the item was stolen from one of his work sites or after when disposing of the body. Not finding any connection between Steve and Janelle, police were once again at a loss. Especially when they found out that these 16 people listed as a person of interest all had alibis. Months passed, then years, and it seemed that the investigation was at a standstill. Delaying his retirement in order to bring this case to a close, Bob Peters, in 2004, began combing back through their old records, looking for anything that they might have missed in Janelle's case. That's when he stumbled upon a fingerprint card that had been taken after a burglary that occurred around the time of the murder. Those seemingly unrelated at the time the print was sent off for comparison and was deemed a match with a set that was left upon the tarp. The prints, it seemed, belonged to a man named Glenn McNeil, who, at the time of the murder, was living and working on the island as a chef. Though this seemed like a huge win, investigators needed more if they wanted to arrest this man. Believing that Janelle had likely been driven from wherever she was killed to the park where her body was found, the investigators tried to track down the car that Glenn was driving at the time. After months of searching, one of Glenn's former neighbors heard on the radio that the police were looking for the car and called to tell them that the white Honda they were looking for might just be the one abandoned in front of his house. 
Offering it to the police, inside the car's trunk was a plethora of forensic evidence. Between the specks of blood, flecks of paint, pieces of glass similar to those found on the body, and strands of Janelle's hair, investigators knew they finally found their man, who was now living almost a thousand miles away in New Zealand with his partner and two children. Never mentioned during that inquest, and not even listed in Janelle's diary, investigators found no connections between Glenn and Janelle, despite the incredibly personal and violent attack. They needed to speak with Glenn themselves to make those connections, so bringing him into an interview room at the local police station, they asked him about the case and explained how they connected the whole thing back to him. Calm, cool, and collected, Glenn told the men interviewing him that, on the morning that Janelle went out for that walk, he had smoked marijuana and gotten into his car. Reaching down to grab some cigarettes, he swerved and felt his car jolt as if he had hit something. Thinking he might have ran over some sort of animal, he stopped and got outside to look. There, under his car, was Janelle Patton. Panicking, he pulled the young woman out from under his vehicle, put her in the trunk, and then drove back home to try and collect himself. Wanting to make sure that she was dead, he then grabbed one of his kitchen knives, opened the trunk, and plunged it into her chest. Though he claimed he only remembered stabbing her once, a clear departure from what the autopsy showed, investigators showed Glenn the photos of Janelle's body, and pretty quickly, his story was changed. This time he said he heard a muffled sound coming from the trunk, and realizing she was still alive inside, he decided to stab her a handful of times with a fillet knife rather than rush her to the hospital for help. He then said he wrapped her body with some plastic he found behind his house and then drove to the spot where he dumped her body. Claiming he was overwhelmed by guilt, he told investigators that he tried to take his own life at least six times over the years. But never once did he try and contact the police during the very public investigation. On February 1st, 2006, after listening to the confession, 28-year-old Glenn Peter Charles McNeil was arrested for the murder of Janelle Patton. Entering a plea of not guilty in August of 2006 and retracting his confession, he claimed he was in a poor mental state when he was picked up by police and simply agreed to what they told him to say. During the trial, a biologist testified that unknown female DNA was found on Janelle's shorts and under her fingernails casting suspicions on Glenn's ex-wife, Alicia, and naming her as a potential co-conspirator. She testified that she had no knowledge or involvement in the murder and was later dismissed without ever having her DNA tested. Though the defense tried to use the female DNA to prove that the murder might have been committed by a female assailant, on March 9, 2007, the trial ended, and after jury deliberations, they returned and found Glenn McNeil guilty of Janelle's murder. He was sentenced to 24 years in prison on July 25th, 2007, and has since appealed his sentence without any success. Then in June of 2011, there were rumors that the case would be reopened after Glenn made some statements indicating that he knew who the real killers were, saying that a couple, a man and woman, killed Janelle because she threatened to tell police about their illegal drug activities, Glenn claimed that the pair enlisted his help 
in hiding the body as his repayment for stealing two of their cannabis plants. He said that if he did not help them, they were going to go after his ex-wife. And if tested, the female DNA under Janelle's fingernails would match the woman in the couple. His claims were ultimately dismissed, however, and the AFP maintained that there was no evidence to support this new version of events. The case remains closed. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on February 2nd. Don't forget to write and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.